I'm Brian. I'm one of the elders here at North Shore. I get to read the scripture for today, which is out of John 1, verses 1 through 18. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Now let's pray. Holy and perfect God, we love you. You are the wonderful counselor and our mighty God. You are the word. You are the everlasting father and the prince of peace. You are the maker of heaven and of earth and, and are the giver of all life. You are so worthy of our praise and of our worship. The universe with all its splendor is a display of how glorious you are. So please help us to proclaim your glory in all that we do. Please help us to be to be bold in our praise of you, and help us to not be ashamed or embarrassed of you, but to put you above all else. Father, and help us to desire things that please you. Help us to desire and become good at things that bring you glory. Help us to lay down the burdens of vain religion and idolatrous things in our lives. Our value is found in you and all that pleases you and brings you glory. Point us in that direction, please. Help open our eyes to those things. Father, this morning we, we pray for, um, for Ryan and Rebecca Panoski and their little guy, Nahum. God, we pray for continued healing for Nahum and also provision for Ryan and Rebecca, God, because extended hospital stays are expensive. Lord, we pray for Chris Gretzinger, we, play, we pray that, that you would encourage him and build his confidence in you, Jesus. We pray for healing and recovery for Chuck Sample. Please help him heal quickly and completely. Also, we pray for all those that are traveling um, over this next week and weeks to come. We pray for safety and favor on the roads. And Father, finally, please bless this time of worship Open our hearts and our minds to what you have for us this morning. 
May only your word be spoken here today and give Pastor Duncan the boldness and clarity to proclaim it. In Jesus' name, amen. four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, tell the same basic story, but they do it obviously in some very different ways. And one of the places those differences is on clear display is in the Christmas story. Mark distinguishes himself by not including it at all in his Gospel. He starts at age 30 with Jesus beginning his public ministry. Like the rest of his gospel, Matthew writes his version on the birth of Jesus, emphasizing how each major event fulfills Old Testament prophecies about the newborn king of Israel. Luke is the historian, and so he is seeking to give an orderly account, and so he gives the most detailed rendering of the events surrounding the birth of Christ. And characteristically, because 90% of what's in John's gospel is not in the other three gospels, John's version of Jesus coming to earth is radically different than Matthew's and Luke's. In John's version, he writes more as a theologian than a historian, and his focus is on what we call the incarnation. God became flesh and dwelt among us. There's no baby, no Bethlehem, no shepherds, no wise men. John's account is not character-driven, it's not event-driven, it's driven by the cosmic spiritual realities that lie behind the people and the events. And so John structures the opening verses of his letter, this gospel, like a composer would write an overture to a Broadway musical. That is, he introduces the key themes of the book by giving a brief glimpse of them in the very beginning, and then in the rest of the book, he develops all of that. John, characteristically and unique from everybody else in the New Testament, writes with vivid imagery. He loves images like light and darkness and life. Those are all very big ideas for John, and he introduces them here in the Gospel in these first 18 verses, which is what Bible scholars call the prologue to John's gospel. The first example, and probably the most notable example of John's imagery, is in this very first verse of his gospel. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now we know from verse 14 that in the imagery of the Word, he's talking about Jesus there, John says, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That's Jesus. So the question would be, why doesn't John, who knew Jesus better than any of the other disciples, why doesn't he call our Lord by his name? Why does he call him the Word? Or in the Greek, it's the Logos. Why does he call him the Logos? That sounds like kind of a philosophical title. In the beginning was the Logos. Well, the first and the most important reason he uses the Logos is because he's revealing that the person who took on flesh in Mary's womb was infinitely more than the supposed son of a Jewish carpenter. The first four verses of John tell us that our fundamental understanding 
of that babe in Bethlehem should not be as a babe in Bethlehem, as wonderful as that is for us to think about. From these verses, it's very clear that John's burden is to communicate that the one who lived on this planet as Jesus of Nazareth is also the creator and redeemer. He is God incarnate. The first four verses of John's gospel communicates the deity of Christ. It communicates his deity. Listen to the very different ways that John just absolutely pounds this home again and again. First notice the not-so-unique way that John chooses to open his gospel. Anyone who knows the Bible well at all knows that when John opens his letter with, in the beginning was the word, he's deliberately drawing a parallel with the opening words of the Bible back in Genesis. In the beginning, God. So when John says, in the beginning was the word, that is a very powerful way of boldly revealing that Jesus is God, because Jesus, the word, shares an absolutely unique attribute of God, and that is his pre-existence. In the beginning was the Word. The Word existed before anything. Whenever you plot on a graph the beginning of time or the creation of the universe, at that moment the Word already was. In the beginning. Whenever the beginning was, the Word was. He was already there. And John also reveals Jesus' deity in the second phrase where it says, and the word was with God. Okay? Part of that is to communicate the absolute intimacy, unique intimacy that the word had with God. But John is also communicating to his Jewish readers that the Old Testament God that they knew, in his eternal existence before creation, he wasn't alone. He had a companion with him. There was someone else who was not created. And we know the Word was not created because when the creation occurred, he already was. In the third phrase of the first verse, John explicitly reveals the identity of the Word when he says, and the Word was God. Now, in the Greek language, like English and I suppose other languages too, there's always more than one way to communicate a message. John could have communicated the truth that the Word was God in any number of grammatical styles and word orders. But the Greek scholars tell us that the way that he chooses to word this verse is the one way that most clearly, most unambiguously, most emphatically communicates that this one called the word is, in fact, God. That's why it is nothing less than blasphemous to claim, as people like the Mormons or the Jehovah's Witnesses or other cults do, that this phrase in John 1.1 is anything less than a brazen claim that the word, Jesus, is God. Any attempt to read the word is a God or something less than a transparent statement affirming that Jesus is God, that is an intentional distortion that violates elementary rules of Greek grammar. Of all the New Testament writers, John most clearly and repeatedly states that Jesus Christ is God, the second person of the Trinity, and he states it right here in the first sentence of his prologue. 
Now, what John has said in verse 1 alone is more than sufficient to prove that he's claiming that Jesus, the Word, is God. But John, in verse 2, reiterates that truth, and in verse 3, he reinforces that truth. Get the idea this is kind of important for John? In verse 2, he evidently wants to reassure us that his earth-shattering claim in verse 1 was no mistake, so he says again, he was, in the beginning, with God. He repeats the divine pre-existence and the unique intimacy Jesus and the Father had. God as the Jews understood him and the Word. God and the Word were together in their pre-creation existence, before the angels, before anything. Then he says in verse 3, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Whenever you see awkwardness in a translation, it's because the original is awkward too, and they're trying to convey that it's awkward. And if it's awkward, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, it's awkward for a reason. The author's trying to make a point by the awkwardness. John is making another profound claim here, and that is when the creation did occur, it was the Word who was doing the creating. Again, clear claim that the Word is God because the Bible consistently, generation, gen, Genesis to Revelation, affirms that only God creates. Revelation chapter 4, we read in verse 11 that the creatures around God's throne cry out, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. The reason our Lord and God is worthy to receive glory and honor and power, the glory and honor and power do God, is because He's doing what God alone does. He created all things. The Creator is worshipped as God, and John says, and the Word is the Creator. He continues, all things were created through the Word. And then he states it negatively. And without him was not anything made that was made. John is not wasting words by stating this both positively and negatively. He's laboring to remove any possible speck of reasonable doubt that the Word is, in fact, God. He was preexistent. He accompanied the one the Jews understood to be God before creation, and he did something only God can do. He created everything. Nothing that was created has a different creator than the Word. In verse 4, he makes another claim that can be true only about God himself. He says, in him was life. Now, when John says, in him was life, he's not simply saying that the Word was alive. No, this is a claim that the Word is the source of life. And there's only one source of life, and it's God. Jesus says later in John 5, 26, For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. The Bible does not teach that life and death are purely biological realities. Life and death are spiritual entities. In the Bible, death is not defined fundamentally as when a person stops breathing. Death is a spiritual power. Likewise, life is not simply the maintenance of biological function. It is a spiritual reality that only God gives. 
When Jesus says in John 5.26, For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself, he's revealing that life comes only from God, who is the source of life. We not only have spiritual life apart from God, we have physical life. When God says of the word, in him was life, he's making another bold claim to the deity of Christ. We see a second reason, another reason why John uses this cryptic word, the word, or the logos. And we see that when we look in the Old Testament, and we notice the unique qualities that God ascribes to the spoken word of God. It's amazing to look at this. In Psalm 33, 6, it says, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, so this is a spoken word, all their host. So God created the universe with all its starry hosts through the spoken word of his mouth. The word has creative power. That's the point. Just like John says of the word. Psalm 107.20 says this about the Jewish exiles returning from Israel. It says, he, speaking of God, sent out his word and he healed them and delivered them from their destruction. Again, we see the word has divine power. The word from God heals and delivers from his people from destruction. So in the Old Testament, God employed his word to create the heavens and to heal and deliver his people. You hear how... What the word does is also what God does. In Isaiah 55, 11, many of us have heard this. God says of his word that it goes out from my mouth, it shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Again, the word is something that God sends out to his people, and it is omnipotent in the sense that it will accomplish whatever God intends it to accomplish. So also, he sent Jesus as the word to his people. And just like the spoken word of God, Jesus was given power to accomplish all of God's purposes and to succeed in whatever God sent him to do. The word of God is omnipotent in the sense that it will not return empty. And the same is true of Jesus. In these Old Testament references, we mustn't miss the fact that the spoken word of God functions like God when God sends it. Then when you move into Hebrews chapter 1, you can connect the dots between the Old Testament spoken word and the New Testament spoken word. And the author says, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. Do you see the connection there? With John chapter 1, God spoke through the Old Testament prophets, and now God has spoken through his Son, the Word, the heir of all things, the creator of the world. He's not simply saying that in the Old Testament, God spoke his message through his messengers, the prophets, and now Jesus has come as the ultimate messenger prophet, and God has spoken through him. That's not all of what he's saying. He's saying that God revealed himself through the inspired word of the prophets, That was self-revelation was, however, incomplete. Now he's revealed himself finally and ultimately through his Son, the Creator God. God the Father has revealed himself finally and ultimately through God the Word. 
So the second reason God calls Jesus the Word is because he's the final and complete revelation of God. And John unpacks this truth in a powerful conversation he has in his gospel in chapter 14. In verse 9, Jesus on the night before his crucifixion says to Philip, Have I not been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? What, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? See, he's unpacking what he said in chapter 1. The word Jesus is nothing less than God's expression of himself on earth in the person of his Son. Verses 1 through 4 of John chapter 1 reveal the deity of Christ. In verses 5 through 13, John reveals something else about Jesus, and that is his relationship to the world. John introduces this relationship in verse 5 where he says, The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Again, there the, John is speaking in imagery again, isn't he? Light and darkness. The word came as the light to shine in the darkness. The light is another image representing God here. In the Bible, God uses light to describe truth, and darkness frequently represents error. Psalm 119.105, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. So when John says God is light, he's saying God is truth. There's no error in him. But light here also speaks of a moral purity that defeats the darkness. And later on, John says in his gospel in 319, Jesus says, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. The light of Jesus is contrary to and opposed by the evil works and wicked things. In the Bible, darkness is more than just the absence of light. It is an active evil that flees the light. Those in spiritual darkness hate the light, Jesus says. When John tells us in chapter 1, verse 5, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it, he's revealing that there is an ongoing conflict between light and darkness. The darkness opposes Christ. It has not overcome him. The opposition between the light of Christ and this dark world is seen even more clearly in verses 9 and 10. The true light which enlightens everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. To understand this better, we have to understand what John means when he speaks of the world, because he has a very specific understanding of the world. John is not saying that in the incarnation, the word was transferred from heaven to another destination. That is not what John means by the world. For John, the world is far more than a destination for Jesus. The world is an organized spiritual system under Satan's control that fiercely opposes all things from God. John says in 1 John 2.16, For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride in possessions, is not from the Father, but is from the world. So the world is a spiritual breeding ground for all the evil desires from which our sin is birthed. The world is a spiritual cesspool teeming with spiritual bacteria, 
John wants to powerfully remind us that when the Word came into the world as a baby in Bethlehem, he was entering an inconceivably hostile environment. Sending the Word into this world would be like placing a lamb in a den of hungry lions. They instantly attack. It would be like introducing a germ-free organism into raw sewage. Instantly the bacteria converge to break it down. John structures his argument here, and this is so important, to heighten the profound irony involved in the world rejecting the Word. The Word is the Creator, but when He comes into this world that He created, and which He as Creator has absolute authority over, He's rejected. He's not welcomed. Verse 11 heightens that sense of irony. It says, He came to His own. And his own people did not receive him. So Jesus comes, not just in just a general sense to this world as its creator, on a rational scale, that alone would have been enough to earn him a worshipful welcome. But no, he comes specifically to his chosen people, the people of Abraham, who through the law, who through the temples, who through the prophets, who through the priests and through all the kings for 2,000 years have been comprehensively prepared by God to receive him as their king and messiah. These were also people who, before the birth of Jesus, had not heard one spoken word from one prophet for 400 years in Israel. They had been totally deprived of the light of God's spoken world for four centuries. And so when the babe is born in Bethlehem, the ultimate spoken word of God had come into the world, and specifically to the Jews, who should have been starving for it, and who had been methodically prepared to receive him. Well, the expected rational response to the advent of the Messiah from the Jews would have been the first century equivalent of a ticker tape parade. Instead, the very ones who had been painstakingly prepared, the ones who had been waiting for their Messiah to rescue them, the very ones he came to deliver and to heal and to teach, they tortured him and they killed him. This is the mother of all ironies, and John wants us to see it. The Creator is killed. The source of life dies. Those who owe their very life to Him, whose lives are on loan from Him, mercilessly take His life. John pictures the opposition from the world of Jesus in Revelation chapter 12, where Satan, who he pictures as a red dragon, is brooding over Mother Israel as she's in labor with her Messiah, as he waits to take the helpless newborn and dash him to bits. The point is clear. When Jesus came into this world, he is very much stepping into enemy-held territory, and this world's biggest, most lethal weapons were trained on him from the earliest moments of his incarnation. And you see that in Matthew and Luke's account. Opposition was the overwhelming response of the world, but in verse 12, John tells us of another splinter group who had a very different response. His own people did not receive him, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So in the midst of this massive opposition, there was a remnant, a remnant of people 
who welcomed him, who received him, who believed in him, and who were born again. This is where Jesus is introducing us to what he's going to say later in chapter 3. You must be born again. These people were born not of the flesh, not of the will of the husband or of the will of man, born of God, spiritually birthed out of the kingdom of darkness to become children of the heavenly Father, children of light. Okay, there is much more that we could say about the prologue to John's gospel, but that gives us enough for us to do some thinking about what does this mean for us this Christmas week? A first point of application is if you're a believer, this calls us to allow the truth of the world's overwhelmingly hostile reception to the word to produce in you, to produce in me, a profound gratitude for our salvation. I once heard a leading pastor confess that the hardest theological question for him to answer is, why are so few people saved? Why do so few people genuinely receive Jesus. And that question is rooted in the undeniable biblical truth that out of all the billions of people in human history and of all the eight billion people currently on this planet, only a tiny percentage of them will be in heaven. And Jesus says this in Matthew 7, 14, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life and those who find it are few. Later in Matthew 22, 14, Jesus says, for many are called, few are chosen. The vast majority of people alive today are part of this hostile world, and they will remain in opposition to God all of their lives, successful rebels to the end. Though many people in churches every week may outwardly mouth respect and honor for Christ, the truth is they, not Jesus, are the Lord of their lives. By their actions, they declare that they want no part of him and his loving reign over their life. And it's crucial for us to remember that if you love Christ and treasure him, it's only because in his infinite grace, God birthed you into his family. We can't miss that here. Verse 13 speaks of those who received Jesus, and John says, they were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Ultimately, God births his children. We don't birth ourselves. This is totally and completely God's gracious work. If you've genuinely received him, if you've recognized him and treasure him as God, if you've been drawn to his light and worship him as the creator, be grateful for the grace that he's given you in salvation. You're part of a small remnant of people saved by grace who will not taste the eternal justice of God. Most reject him. If you haven't, the right response is praise and worship in gratitude. Second, in our understanding of the truth of Christmas, we have to stay biblically balanced. And what I mean by that is we must let all the Gospels that speak of Christ's birth inform how we respond to Christmas. We rightly delight in the narratives of Matthew and Luke that bring out the glorious truth that in the fullness of time, God acted in history, in people, in events, to bring about the birth of baby Jesus in Bethlehem. The stories are filled with wonderful details. They're very profitable for us to study hard and to learn well. But if those historical records of Jesus' birth in Matthew 
and Luke are not informed by John's theology of the incarnation, those stories are completely drained of their significance. They're sadly reduced to just little more than sentimental stories we haul out once a year to give us a seasonal warm fuzzy. What ultimately gives meaning to the events recorded in Matthew and Luke is the fact that that little baby boy born in a stable, laid in a manger, is the king of the universe. The creator God, pre-existent with God in glory. He's the light of the world. He's the source of all life. He's God incarnate. The one before whom all heaven bows down and worships took on human flesh and became a baby unable to feed himself, who had to have someone change his diaper. Need to spend meditating on that ultimate meaning of Christmas, which isn't ultimately about angels and shepherds and a virgin girl named Mary. It has to do with the fact that the God of all glory veiled himself in flesh and invaded this putrid sewage plant of a world and rescued out of it a remnant of people for himself. And he did this by allowing the darkness of this satanic world to hang him up like a slaughtered animal on a cross. Apart from the theology of the incarnation, the Christmas stories lose all of their meaning. Finally, if you're here today and you haven't done so, surrender to the reign of this heavenly king who came to rule in people's hearts. Again, by rule, I'm not talking about going to church or mentally agreeing with what the Bible says about Jesus or having the kind of faith that doesn't lead you to treasure Christ. After hearing again of the incarnation, do we really believe that the Lord of the universe, the all-wise one, left his glorious heavenly throne and became a helpless baby to die on a cross so that people could read the story of his life and birth and death and say, that's true, I believe that, but then live as if it had no more impact on them than the world. Is the ultimate purpose of the infinite God clothing himself with flesh to produce a people who believe in the incarnation, but in their lives and in their decisions, they treasure the same world that killed him? John says, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. That tells us that if we truly receive him, if we truly believe in him, we will become children of God, and children are recognized by the fact that they resemble their father. Do you love God as your father? Do you know him personally? Is there an intimate father-child relationship with him? If not, then don't count on that kind of faith to get you to heaven. This is an urgent matter because the word that John speaks of here in chapter 1 will be making a second appearance, and it will not be as a baby or as one who willingly submits to his own crucifixion. Revelation 19, listen for the word of God in this text. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it, is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. Same word. Different advent. The Word will be revealed not as a baby, who comes to a hostile world to save it, but as the warrior king who comes to destroy all opposition 
to his reign. All those who refuse to submit to him. Now we can come to the word who became flesh and dwelt among us as our savior and bow down before him in, in faith as our creator, as the light of the world, as the one who invaded our darkness. We can be adopted into the family of God, become children of the light. But if we do not recognize his rightful lordship over us, then we will meet with the word of God who will brandish his sword and bring judgment on all of those who oppose him. So this year, as you celebrate Christmas, make absolutely sure you are trusting in what Jesus the word has done for you in give, forgiving your sins and giving you a righteousness that is not your own, a right standing before God. May God give us the grace to live and celebrate the incarnation rightly before the word made flesh for his glory and for our joy. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, there are sections of your word that when we read it, we know it's really important, but it's hard. And we're not sure what it says. And this prologue is like that. It's full of words that we know intuitively have a lot of weight. And yet we're not necessarily sure of all of what that means. God, I thank you that there is a meaning and it is full of weight. And God, I pray that as by your grace it's come out today more clearly, that you would enable us to bow to bow and worship before the incarnate one, the one who left the glories of heaven to come to earth and wear flesh so that that flesh could be killed for us. Father, we pray that you would enable us this week as we lead up to Christmas and we're doing all the stuff that has to happen, the baking and the shopping and the whatever, Father, I pray that you would enable us, by your grace, to never lose sight of what we've talked about this morning. But this is what it's about. Help us to do that for the glory of Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, we're